Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege of being in a meeting like this. We do not take for granted the grace that you've given to us, the mercies that have met us in this new day. We know it's because of Christ, and so we want to remember him now as we consider his word and think about our lives. Think about this moment in the light of that word. So please come and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1983, the Russian dissident and historian Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave the Templeton Lecture in London. And the title of that lecture was Godlessness, the First Step to the Gulag. He began his speech with these words. More than half a century ago, ago, while I was still a small child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I've spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main clause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it any more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. What is more, the events of the Russian Revolution can only be understood now at the end of the century against the background of what has since occurred in the rest of the world. What emerges here is a process of universal significance. And if I were called upon to identify briefly the principal trait of the entire 20th century, here too I would be unable to find anything more precise and pithy than to repeat once again, men have forgotten God. That diagnosis fits the Southern Baptist Convention in these early decades of the 21st century. We have forgotten God. Not in the sense that we have forgotten all the true things about God or any of them. We still affirm his triunity. We still acknowledge his attributes, especially those that our culture finds palatable at the moment. But we have forgotten his surpassing significance, his glory, his weightiness, which is what the Old Testament word for glory means. In many ways, that's the explanation of all downward spirals throughout human history. We could look at what took place in the Garden of Eden and say that when the devil effectively tempted Eve and Adam, what was going on there was that our first parents forgot God. Did God really say? And they were persuaded to walk away from the word. We see it throughout the history of the Old Testament. When God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, he did it by destroying Pharaoh and his mighty Egyptian empire with amazing displays of power. And then he split the Red Sea so that walls of water were on either side of the dry ground that he led his people across. And when Pharaoh and his army got there, he swallowed them up with that water. And then God established his people as a nation at Mount Sinai, thundering out his Ten Commandments and calling them to live under his authority. But despite these impressive displays of 
his power and glory, the people very quickly went back to pagan religions. And they fashioned a golden calf and heard Aaron say, Here, O people, are your gods that delivered you out of Egypt. After God dealt severely with them and Moses interceded in their behalf, he restored them, but he did so by giving them strict and explicit instructions to obey all the words that he had spoken to them. And yet they failed to do that. He takes them to the land that he had promised to give to them. And when the spies go in, 10 of them came back and convinced the whole multitude, we cannot take that land, it's too dangerous. And they walked away from the promise of God. In other words, they forgot him. So in 40 years, in the wilderness wanderings, they were brought finally to the point of the Jordan River. And again, God provided that wonderful miracle in leading them across into the promised land. But before they took that first step, Moses, who would not be allowed to go with them into the promised land, gave them more explicit instructions like this in Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them that it may go well with you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 10 also records words that he gave to the people on that occasion. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. After Moses died and God commissioned Joshua, his his assistant, to take his place and to lead the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and to conquer them. He told him in Joshua 1, 6, 8 through 8, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses, my servant, which he commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Some 30 years later after Joshua had led the children of Israel into Canaan and had conquered most of the enemies there, he called upon his people to a renewed devotion to God before he died. Listen to his words in Joshua 24. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if this is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, they served in the region beyond the river, are the gods of the Amorites in whom 
whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose you this day, he said, whom you will serve. And of course, the people responded to the challenge with the following words that are recorded in Joshua 24, 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. But within just a few years, as the era of the judges began and lasted for about 150 to 200 years, the people repeatedly wandered into pagan practices. When you survey the book of Judges, Judges, you see a cyclical pattern that repeats itself. The people leave God. They forget his word. They follow after the pattern of their pagan neighbors and they become enslaved or they become oppressed and they call out to God. He sends them a deliverer in the form of a judge and he restores them. And then the cycle just repeats itself over and over and over. They were people who knew about God. They were people who honored some of his commandments. But in reality, they were people who kept being more effectively discipled by the, nature, the nations that were around them than they were by the God who had redeemed them. The last five chapters of Judges makes this crystal clear as it describes the perverted worship that was taking place in Israel in the name of Yahweh, as well as the scandalous abuse that was taking place and the horrific slaughter and man-stealing that carried, was carried out in the name of justice. And so this epitaph is found on the last book, on the last verse of the book as the summary of that era. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people of God had been Canaanized. They forgot the true God. The period of the monarchy saw things get a little better for a while, but it did not last. When God replaced Saul with David, he called David a man after his own heart. But David multiplied wives contrary to God's word. And then he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband to cover his sin. Solomon, his son, follows his father as king and starts out well, but he too increasingly falls into grievous patterns of sin, violating the very stipulations that God had laid out for Israelite kings in 1 Kings, or Deuteronomy chapter 7. In 1 Kings 3.3, we read this description of Solomon. He loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. He loved God, yet he engaged in worship according to pagan customs. By the end of Solomon's life, in 1 Kings 11, we read how far away from the Lord Solomon had turned. We read that he loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to his people Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they be with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. The scripture says that Solomon clung to these in love. When he was old, his wives, the scripture says, turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. 
as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth and the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. And then verse 7 says, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh and the abomination of Moab and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Solomon, wisest man in the world, was Canaanized. He forgot God. God became angry with Solomon. He tore the kingdom in two as a result. And from that point on, the northern kingdom degenerated generation after generation into greater and greater idolatry over the 200-year history of its existence. We might say that in terms of comparison to the southern kingdom, they were the true liberals among the Old Testament people of God. They never did really take God's word seriously. And finally, the northern kingdom was overthrown in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, summarizes why the northern kingdom of Israel came to that end. It says, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. The whole chapter of 2 Kings 17 is worth carefully reading to see the direct application that it has for us today in the Southern Baptist Convention. Let me just simply read the last few verses of that chapter where we're, giving some, we're given something of an afterward of Israel's downfall and captivity. The author says in verse 34, to this day they do according to their former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow the statutes or the rules of the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. Verse 36, he says, you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power, with an outstretched arm, you shall bow yourselves to him, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant I have made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God. And then it concludes with these words. However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. They forgot God. The southern kingdom fared a little better, though it lasted in 150 years longer before God sent the Babylonians to overthrow Judah and take them captive. They tended to take the word of God more seriously than their northern counterparts. And so we might call them, by way of comparison, the conservatives in the kingdom. But some of their kings did not follow the Lord at all. Most of them did not blatantly disregard God's word, but they too frequently either led or allowed God's people to worship foreign gods, even as they were seeking to acknowledge Yahweh as the true God. This is true even of those kings that are set before us in Judah as good kings. 
Men like Asa, the third king of Judah, who reigned 41 years, did much good, yet listen to the way that 1 Kings 15, 11 through 14 describes him. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. Praise God! But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. Jehoshaphat, his son, had a similar testimony written about him in 1 Kings 22:43. It says, he walked in the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet, the high places were not taken away. And the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Similar language is used to describe the reigns of Joash and other kings following him. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all of his days, 2 Kings 12 says. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. 2 Kings 14, Amaziah says he did right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David, his father, the high places were not removed and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Azariah in 2 Kings 15 says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offering on the high places. And so Judah goes throughout her history in starts and stops, at times returning to the Lord in what was, looked like a, a great revival under King Josiah for 31 years, and then at other times completely capitulating to paganism, as in the 55-year reign of his grandfather, Manasseh. Much of the history of the southern kingdom can adequately be described as the people and their leaders doing right in the sight of God, Except, except they didn't remove the high places or the Asherahs or other pagan idols. They did what God told them to do for the most part. Except, brothers and sisters, the problems always arise in the exceptions. What are we to make of all this? We can't improve on Solzhenitsyn's summary of the 20th century Russia. They forgot God. They still identified as God's people. They took his name on their lips. They even acknowledged him at times in their worship. But they didn't consider him as the God, the only God. They didn't consider his glory, his significance. They didn't see the significance of the only true God to the details of their own lives. And so they lost their resolve to keep their allegiance to him despite all the pledges that they made. And they were easily swept away by the pagan currents and thinking of their surrounding nations. When we come to the New Testament, we find a similar pattern in New Covenant believers. We just have to simply think superficially about the life of Peter, who, who 
had great resolve and yet failed so famously and miserably time after time. He boldly declared on the night that Jesus was betrayed that even if all of the other apostles fall away from you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die, he says, I will never deny you. And then Matthew in chapter 26, verse 35 adds this statement, and all the other disciples said the same. They were all resolved in that moment. They had sincere intentions, but they all failed when the trial come. And Peter failed out of fear for a little servant girl to the degree that he called down curses on himself. I don't know this man. Even after Pentecost, Peter evangelized Cornelius and other Gentiles. And he's stunned that God's saving Gentiles without making them Jews. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he reports it to the church at Jerusalem that Gentiles have been granted repentance along with us. And when the Jerusalem council is called, as it's recorded in Acts 15, Peter testifies. He has no doubt that God's purpose of grace extends beyond the nation of the Jews all the way to the ends of the earth, including all the Gentiles. Yet at Antioch, he's eating with Gentile Christians. And those people from the circumcision party come to town. And what does Peter do? With all of his resolve, what does he do? He folds. He fades. We see God's people in the New Testament descriptions of them also being prone to losing their resolve. For the sake of time, I'm just going to refer to these seven churches, five of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, when we read the Lord's statements to them, his letters to them, and how he evaluates them, what he sees in them, and what he says about them. The church at Ephesus, what a wonderful church in so many ways, well-ordered. They practice discipline. Doctrine means something to them. And then Jesus says, but this is what I have against you. You've forsaken your first love. Doing lots of good and right things, but they have lost the fervor of their love for the Lord Jesus. Or the church at Pergamum, they held fast to the name of Jesus Christ, but they didn't, deny, they didn't deny him even in the face of persecution. And they did well, except they tolerated the teachings of Balaam and the heresy of the Nicolaitans. The church at Thyatira, Jesus commends their works, their love, their faith, their service, their endurance, and their spiritual growth. They were doing so well, except they tolerated that wicked woman Jezebel who was teaching sexual immorality and idolatry in the church. Sardis, they had a few faithful church members remaining. And evidently at one time had been a church that was full of life. But when Jesus addresses them, we see that they were living off of their past reputation. And they had a reputation for being alive, but he says, from heaven, I tell you the truth, you're dead. Laodicea, lukewarm, self-deceived church. Great in their own eyes. I have no need of anything. Jesus says, let me tell you what you look like in my eyes. You're poor. You're helpless. You're weak. Spiritually bankrupt. Made Jesus want to spit them out of his mouth. Well, what's the point of this survey, this flyover of Old Testament people of God and New Testament people of God? 
It's to show that the failure of resolve has been the bane of God's people throughout history. When God's people lose their resolve to live as he's called us to live, we lose our way. We become like salt that has lost its savor. We become ruined. In so many ways, brothers and sisters, this is what characterizes the problem with much of the evangelical world today, especially the Southern Baptist Convention world. We're in a mess. We're in deep trouble. The Southern Baptist Convention has so many wonderful things about it. So many obvious displays of God's blessing and faithfulness as he has used this convention of churches. We see so many displays of his blessing and favor in many of our churches. Those who serve in our entities, many of them, many who serve in our institutions, obviously do so out of reverence and fear for God. You know, if you look at the sbc.net website and you just do a search for inerrancy, you will find dozens if not hundreds of articles that trumpet our commitment to the inerrancy of the scriptures. And praise God that it is now normal, indeed required, for anyone who teaches in any of our seminaries, anyone who works in any of our agencies, indeed, for any self-respecting Southern Baptist pastor to acknowledge that yes, the scriptures are indeed inerrant. And yet, we have witnessed time after time when some of our fellow inerrantist pastors and churches and denominational leaders show a lack of resolve and standing on that word when it is costly. I could spend the rest of the day going over examples. And I take no pleasure in doing this. And you undoubtedly know these and more that I'll set before you today. But consider a few of them. In the fall of 2019, President Danny Aiken of Southeastern Seminary hired Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor to teach. She had recently published a book with a chapter in it by Matthew Vines, who in that chapter argues for the acceptance of same-sex relationships because, in his words, Paul's views in Romans 1 were shaped by an outdated patriarchal logic. Dr. Pryor also endorsed the Revoice Conference, whose stated mission in their words at the time is this, supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other gender and sexual minority Christians so they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. Efforts to reach out to Dr. Aiken and to question this and to call for this to be dealt with were met with assurances that Dr. Pryor believes the Baptist faith and message. She has signed the Danvers Statement. She has signed the Nashville Statement. Efforts to communicate directly with Dr. Pryor have been met with obfuscation followed by a reaffirmation of the mission of Revoice. In a 2017 article in The Witness, what is now called The Witness, a titled article, Intersectionality and Reconciliation in Our Churches, 
Dr. Jarvis Williams of Southern Seminary uses the ideological framework of intersectionality to positionalize himself in terms of his race and gender and oppression. Just listen to part of what he writes. Though I am a marginalized African-American man within a white male-dominated evangelical movement, movement Southern Baptist and Reformed, I still am part of the privileged male majority in my Christian tribe. My brown marginalized identity intersects with my male identity. Though my African-American identity has caused me to lose some certain privileges and has caused me certain traumatic experiences of racism both in the SBC and in the broader evangelical movement, my male identity affords me certain privileges that are unavailable for many black and brown women in white male-dominated evangelical Christianity. You know, this is a brother who has a PhD from the most prestigious Southern Baptist Seminary at which he now teaches. And yet he wants to identify himself in terms of these oppressive and oppressed categories. He's following hook, line, and sinker along with the ideology of intersectionality. And of course, the infamous Resolution 9 from the 2019 Committee on Nominations at the Southern Baptist Convention. That committee was comprised of theologians, respected theologians, who were teaching at that time in our seminaries. Keith Whitfield and Walter Strickland from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And Curtis Woods, the chairman of that committee, taught at Southern Seminary at that time. In January 2019, when J.D. Greer announced the members of the resolution committee for that convention, he said it this way, each person was chosen because they demonstrate great commitment to the Southern Baptist Convention and because they reflect both who we are and who we are becoming. Efforts to engage members of that committee have simply found them doubling down in their decision both in the process that they employed as well as the content of the resolution that was set before the convention. The Vice President of NAM, Dahadi Lewis, teaches that holistic restoration is what the gospel is about. These are his words. The gospel is not good news without spiritual redemption and restoration. Amen. But. The gospel is also not good news without emotional, economic, and social restoration as well. The good news of the kingdom is that God is establishing a new order where all things, spiritual, emotional, economic, and social, are restored to their original sinless design. He goes on to say in this same teaching that is available publicly that our separation from God is critical and restoration of the relationship back to God is vital. He says, that's where a lot of our gospel is. But then he goes on to say, that's not where all of our gospel is. The gospel's not good news if all it does is reconcile ungodly people to the creator against whom they've sinned. Add to this, 
the steady stream of testimonies of women who describe having been sexually abused by pastors and other Christian leaders in the SBC over the last several years. Some of their stories include detailed accusations of failures to intervene and deal justly and mercifully with the abuse. Some have described efforts to cover up the abuse and even to protect the abusers. We've also witnessed, especially in the last week or two, the leaking of private letters from the former ELC president, Russell Moore, in which he makes several serious accusations against a couple of well-known Southern Baptist leaders. And this, this was followed up by his former vice president, Dr. Philip Bethencourt's self-styled whistleblowing. That's what he calls it by releasing edited audio files of what was supposed to have been confidential meetings. And what amazes me is that the action of these two men are being heralded today as courageous and virtuous. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing courageous about writing a private letter and writing it in a way that it will be consumed publicly and seeing it leak. There's nothing virtuous about taking a confidential meeting and recording it and then leaking the recording and say you're doing so as a whistleblower. We have a book. The Bible tells us how to deal with things that these men have accused others of doing. The Bible gives us clear instructions when there is sin, how that sin is to be dealt with. And yet again, just listen, listen to the people who are telling us how virtuous, how brave these actions are. Again, I could multiply these examples. And not all of them are the same. I'm not trying to suggest that. But they all are challenging, problematic realities that we now face. I haven't said a word about the problematic panel teachings from the North American Mission Board and Southeastern Seminary in the wake of the riots, telling us how we should think about racism while forgetting to mention the gospel, or telling us that we shouldn't ask so much what the rioters are doing, but why they are doing it, because rioting is just the voice of the unheard. The lack of moral reasoning that exists in our highest places in the convention is troublesome. But I do want to mention one more example that is highly problematic, overarching, and easily quantifiable. I'm talking about our lack of resolve in this convention of churches to practice biblical church discipline and pursue regenerate church membership. The 2020 annual church profile reveals that on any given Sunday, far less, far less than one-third of the people on our church rolls even care to show up on a Sunday morning. When you factor in those who are counted include guests, children, attenders who are not members, it gets even worse. How do we explain something like this? How do we explain it in a denomination that prides itself on saying, we are a people of the book? 
Brothers and sisters, we've forgotten God. God doesn't rest very heavily upon us anymore. We take his name. We have theoretical commitments. But when it comes right down to it, we must acknowledge that far too often we lose our resolve. All of the problems that I've mentioned and others stem from the same underlying failure. We do not take God seriously. He doesn't matter much to us in our day, not really. At least not enough for us simply and strictly to take him at his word and to follow that word instead of following man-made schemes. So what are we to do? How should we respond to this day with these problems? We should do exactly like King Josiah did when it was discovered in the reparations of the temple, the book of the law. It was read to him. And he tore his clothes and he covered himself with ashes. And he called upon the nation to hear the word of God. And they repented. We should do exactly what Peter did when he denied Christ and then when Paul rebuked him to his face in Antioch. He repented. He changed. He went a different direction. We should do exactly what Jesus tells those wayward churches to do in Revelation 2 and 3. Repent. Repent. Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior. He shed his blood for our sins. We do not need to cover our sins. We do not need to manufacture an 11th commandment while we violate the 10 that he gave us. Jesus Christ has died. And there's not one problem that the convention of churches known as the Southern Baptist Convention is facing that cannot be resolved by godly fear that leads to genuine repentance. Sadly, we see too few examples of this among us. And I'm saying us, not them, not you, us. But praise God when we do see it. In 2019, March 12th, Michael Haken gave an interview to the Gospel Coalition. And at that time, I was engaged and others were engaged in trying to call attention to the onslaught of social justice that we felt, felt, were, felt was very, very dangerous. And in that interview, he was asked this, what about the, change, or the charge that some evangelicals emphasize social justice it reveals them, to, when they do that, it reveals them to be a species of Marxism? This is what Michael said. He teaches at Southern Seminary. Good brother. I personally find that to be a ludicrous statement and tantamount to fear-mongering in a cultural climate for which socialism is an ever-present bugbear. That was March. In July of 2019, he said this, the story of political philosophy in the 20th century abundantly reveals the bankruptcy of Marxist thought. Please read Orwell if you doubt me. More and more amazed am I that Christians think we can use its analytical tools and not get badly burned. Not long after that, Marty Duran asked him to explain his earlier comments with his latter comments. So how do you reconcile them? And Michael said this, the difference is easily explained. My earlier judgment was mistaken. <laughs> 
I do now think that some evangelicals, by using certain analytical tools that derive from the arsenal of cultural Marxism, are opening Pandora's box. What a wonderful example of humility. Brothers and sisters, we're called to walk in repentance. Luther put it well in the first of his 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is our great need if we're going to be resolved. We must live in repentance and faith. And brothers and sisters, we can live in repentance and faith because Jesus Christ has died. We're not dependent upon our own righteousness. We're not dependent upon what other people think of us. We have a Savior. He's given us a book, and we are responsible to live for His honor and glory according to that book. May God help us to do so.